Welcome to the Exhibit A Podcast. Hello, and welcome again to Exhibit A, where we examine really important family law topics and any other legal topics that we think that you're going to like and find entertaining and informative. And today we've got a big one. Today we're going to talk about a very important topic, and that is is going after the bad guys in family law. A lot of people think that all the fun is is in criminal cases, right? You know, it's the prosecutors and the defense attorneys in criminal cases that get to go after bad people or protect bad people, and they get all the juicy things like murder and and uh, you know uh, theft, things of that nature. Little do people know that in family court, there's a lot of bad behaviors, and the role of a family court uh, attorney is to protect people from those type of uh, behaviors. And I'm talking about things like uh, victims of domestic abuse, uh, people that are uh, having to deal with their spouses who conceal or transfer valuable property to the exclusion of the other person, people that don't pay their support, or people that underreport their earnings so that they don't have to pay as much support. So there's actually a lot of work that we family law attorneys do in protecting our clients. And Frankly, that's why we're in the business is because, uh, you know, we're, we're serving justice by, by making sure that people are protected. So having said that, uh, you need a good attorney, obviously, and I've brought in a really good one today. That's Debbie, Debbie Soleimani, who has worked with me for about five years. Good morning. Good morning. Debbie uh, has been an attorney, as I indicated, about five years. Is that correct? Almost six. Almost six. Okay. <laughs> and Debbie, you uh, are a graduate of UCLA uh, undergrad, yep. Southwestern School of Law, yep. and most importantly, a lot of the people that have worked with Debbie, even her own clients probably don't know this, but she's a graduate of Santa Monica High School. That's true. One of the famous people that come from that school. That I'm sure that on the board there, there's Deborah Salamani, the, the great family <laughs> law attorney. I just actually saw in the news that uh, some of the people that have graduated from that school. I mean, that's that's pretty cool uh, growing up down there, I guess. It was cool. It was a really good opportunity, good experience. Okay. And the other thing that's personal that she's probably going to kill me for mentioning this, but Debbie is a salsa dancer. And uh, what I love about her story, and if you don't mind me telling it, is, is that you uh, in law school decided you needed a break. You needed something to get rid of your stress, and you took up salsa dancing. Isn't that true? That's true. And I don't know how in the world you did that, because I'm going to tell you that for myself, I'm like 99% of the population where when the stress comes on, I do less. And so I gain weight, uh, I get gray hair, I pull my hair out, you know, I do all the bad things, I self-destruct. But, you know, people, a small percentage of people in this world do the opposite and stuff. But how in the world did you come to the conclusion that that was good for you? Or was it something you were brought up, uh, your parents taught you to do that or, or what? Not my parents. My sisters started um, socially salsa dancing when I was little. And so watching them dance, they made it look so seamless uh, and effortless. And it looked so fun. So I, I took it up my first year, after my first year of law school. And it became such a stress reliever and such a nice uh, getaway. It's so therapeutic. And uh, I, could, I could never stop. So well, I, I know that because you're still doing it, right? <laughs> still go. <laughs> Which is, again, you know, we do really difficult work, and you can't put in enough hours into the work that we do as far as yeah. handling cases and stuff, yet you still get out there and you, you uh, 
travel the circuits, I guess, is the best way to do it because there's all kinds of salsa clubs and opportunities, and you're always doing that. Yeah. A lot of energy. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I think that you have a philosophy about why uh, this is good for you as far as getting your mind off of things. Can you explain that? Yeah. I think part of what um, salsa dancing does for me or just any sort of uh, really physical activity is that it opens your mind to new perspectives. It gives you the opportunity to think about things outside of the box. Um, if you keep doing the same thing every day, you go to work every day and you come home and you have dinner and you go to sleep, then your uh, mental process and your ideas and your strategies are all going to be the same. So for me, doing something really invigorating like that and different and uh, stress relieving makes me think about things in a different way and um, think about perspectives that I didn't think about before. It's just a relief. It's like a reality check. That's good. I, I, since I first heard you say that, I've been contemplating you know, my own life, you know, and I probably <laughs> don't do enough of that, but that's a really good lesson. One of the things that I really enjoy about working with you is, is that you're tenacious, and you really are passionate about representing clients that are really on the uh, back end of, a, of an abusive relationship or you know, somebody who's having to deal with a spouse that's playing games. We've had a lot of cases together. I think you remember that uh, one of the first cases that you and I worked on, I started chuckling, and you said, well, what's the matter? And I'm like, man, you're really going after that person. <laughs> it's really refreshing to have somebody uh, you know, as interested and passionate as you are. Uh, so today I thought you would come in because the topic that I want to talk about is going after one of the types of bad people we go after, and that is the person who is underreporting his or her income. Uh, you know, and uh, let me just tell a story about this. Is uh, I used to be a child support prosecutor. It was my very first job. Didn't want to do it, but I started doing it, and I ended up loving it. And during that process, I'll never forget that one of the cases that I had involved a guy that was a gardener. And this gardener earned very little money, and he had two children, uh, two children from two different mothers. And his child support obligations for both of them were about $150, okay? Well, one day he opens the mailbox and he realizes that he just received a check of $11 million because he won the lottery. Wow. And he forgot to tell anybody about it, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. So he continues with this uh, thing of paying his, uh, the mothers of his children $150 a piece per month until he's found out. And the way he's found out, actually, is, is one of the mothers received something in the mail. And I forget what it was, but it was from the Lottery Commission. So we go into court, and I'm dealing with one of my first cases as an attorney. You know, it's a criminal prosecution of this guy. And in walks this slick attorney wearing a, uh, this shiny suit. You know, his hair's all made up, and he's representing this guy. And mm -hmm. I remember approaching him and go, okay, so what's going on? And his answer was, you know, winning the $11 million was the worst thing that ever happened to my client. He's got so many headaches. And I was thinking, oh, my God, that's your defense, brother? Okay, let's put this one on. More money, now that, more problems. Yeah, yeah. Now, that was an easy one, right? Because we, we know that he had the $11 million check. We just subpoenaed the state government. We got him, right? Yeah. But a lot of our cases aren't that easy. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, I call it the Al Capone method, right? You know, the, the gangster method. We all know about Al Capone. Uh, I'm sure that even in your... <laughs> Age group, you know about Al Capone, right? <laughs> so Debbie doesn't know half the things I talk about because of the generation gap. But but Al Capone was somebody that definitely in Chicago is the biggest gangster, you know, and he was known for being kind of the Teflon guy before the Teflon Don ever came about. Uh, 
lots of horrible crimes were occurring in Chicago, and nobody could ever peg Al Capone. He had the cops in his pocket. You know, he had uh, he had all the excuses in the world. He he happened to be out of town when some of these things uh, occurred. But there was a guy by the name of. Elliot Ness. There we go. Okay, <laughs> Elliot Ness. And Elliot Ness was a mild manner, supposedly, you know, guy and stuff. And he worked with his accountants. And the story is, is that they found that Al Capone could not explain why he was living in mansions and driving fancy cars and had bodyguards and all of the fancy foods and things that he had and stuff. You know, where did that money come from? And that's what got Al Capone. And so, you know, we affectionately call, as you know, in our case, the Al Capone method is where we go after people. Uh, who are underreporting their income. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could explain how that happens. So the idea is that anytime um, anyone asks for support or attorney's fees in a family law case, you have to complete certain disclosures, including disclosing all of your income and all of your expenses. Uh, well, in a lot of our cases, people who are trying to underreport their income uh, aren't so slick about it. And so their income doesn't match up to their expenses. So... One of the methods that we use to go after people who are purposely trying to underreport their income to reduce child or spousal support is to demonstrate what their expenses are. Um, it's not as easy as it sounds, but it's doable. And if you have the right documents and if you have the right attorneys, then you can do that. Okay. Well, one thing you said is not as easy as it sounds. I mean, there's some cases where it might be impossible, right? Yes. I mean, there are some people that are so... Uh, good at hiding their money that you'll never know what the exact amount of money that they earn. Probably in most cases, you don't really know exactly how much they earn, right? Especially if it's a cash business or uh, there's any any receipt of cash, it's almost impossible to find. So it's definitely not easy, uh, but it's uh, in the right cases, it's not impossible. Okay. And uh, you got a client whose uh, spouse is playing that game. I don't earn any money. Yet she knows that he earns a lot of money. Mm -hmm. What are you going to look at to start trying to uncover what the truth is? So in every dissolution case, both parties are supposed to produce uh, all of the documents related to their financials. So they're supposed to produce mortgage statements, bank statements, credit card statements. Um, and so that would be that's the starting point. You start by looking at all of those things. And then you can serve more discovery to get more information or just go ahead and subpoena all of those records. So tax returns, uh, checking account statements, savings account statements, credit card statements, all of those things will show the deposits and the withdrawals of funds. And you can uh, put two and two together and in, in an uh, evidentiary hearing demonstrate to the court that this party has underreported his or her income for probably the purposes of reducing support. Okay. And your client is of some help, too, because she or he has lived with this spouse for presumably many years. It could Absolutely. lead you in the right direction. Absolutely. The clients are essential in this case, in this type of scenario, because they tell us the ins and outs. They tell us when they used cash for certain things, when they, uh, you know, the methods of money laundering <laughs> within the family. Oh, I love it. Money laundering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's give you a hypothetical. Okay. See how good you are. I know. I already know that you're good. Okay. I want to demonstrate your goodness. Okay. So you got a client that comes into your office and she says, "I've been married for 20 years to this man. I have we've had two teenage children, and uh, you know the, the the marriage is over with. I just want my fair amount of child and spousal support. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's telling me that he's never going to pay me a dime and that we'll never be able to find out what he earns. 
Now, she tells you that now my husband, for the entire duration of our marriage, has operated a business in downtown L.A. in the jewelry district, and that he is a wholesale diamond dealer. Are you following me so far? Yep. Okay. And what she tells you is, is that um, they live in a home that is valued at $2 million in the San Gabriel Valley area. Uh, it's almost paid off. The children attend private schools. They take piano lessons. Uh, the family has taken a lot of really nice vacations. They've gone to the Caribbean, Europe. Wow. Uh, you know, they've lived a really upper-class lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Okay, And she tells you that you know the way that uh, we've handled the finances is he's handled the finances. He's been very secretive about things. Now, does this at all sound familiar to yes. you? Yes. <laughs> okay. And she further tells you that the way that she's able to uh, use money is, is that he gives her a credit card, she uses the credit card, and then he pays it off at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. The last thing she tells you is, is that he's involved in a circle of friends, okay? And, you know, that they have do things on a handshake basis, and she doesn't know anything about how he operates his business. So having those facts, where do you start? Uh, By the way, does the case sound familiar <laughs> to you at all? A little. Okay. <clears throat> um, first of all, the the small the small business in downtown works on a handshake. Sounds like there's probably going to be a lot of cash in that case, and not a lot of contracts or employment agreements or things like that. So we'd have to be very creative um, in looking for the money, where the money's going. Um, but you can start with just the basics. They have let, a two- let me let me stop you for a second. Okay. One other fact. He, t- he tells you in an income and expense declaration that all he's earning is his $5,000 per month gross. Okay. Yeah. And, and $5,000 a month pays for a $2 million house <laughs> in the San Gabriel Valley. Okay, continue. <laughs> um, yeah, of course, you start with the income and expense declaration. You see at least what expenses he's reporting. But you have to factor in all of the expenses that you know exist, either from your client or just from living life, that you know he hasn't included there. So you know he's got a mortgage. You should be able to have the mortgage statement. Um, you know that he's got uh, piano lessons for the kids and extracurricular activities. You know that they've got vacations, gifts. Um, you know that they've got cars, auto insurance, health insurance, uh, premiums, um, laundry, clothing, uh, everything, uh, all of their monthly expenses. You can add that up. If you look at the wife's credit card statement, you can see how much just she spends alone on that card and tack that right on. And if you add all of those up, you're probably looking at a substantial amount of expenses that exceed $5,000 a month. Good. Let's assume in this case that you deduced that there's about $25,000 per month of expenditures. How do you get that evidence in front of the court to prove your case? Well, you have to use an expert, first of all, um, who will look through all of the statements and the documents and who can testify to um, having done that analysis. But the other thing that you have to be aware of is if you can demonstrate $25,000 of expenditures in one month, then those are net expenditures. That's cash that these people are spending, which means that uh, they have to be earning more than that if they're netting twenty five grand. So... Um, so you're going to tax affect it. So you tax affect it. Okay. So how important is a deposition in these type of cases? Taking the deposition of the 
of the bad guy or vital. bad gal. Vital. Why? Because in a deposition, that gives you the opportunity to uh, put the other side uh, in the hot seat and ask him or her all of the questions that you know you're going to get the answers to. Uh, or on the other hand, test out your theories. Um, if there are things that you're unsure about, then you can ask him or her there and figure out how that plays into the rest of the case. Um, the other great thing about a deposition is that it nails down the other person's answer. And so if they try to lie or they do lie and then you get them on the stand and you ask them the same question and they give you a different answer, uh, then they're, uh, you've impeached them. You've demonstrated that they're lying and that the court probably shouldn't believe what they're saying. Okay. Now, besides looking at all the expenditures, you do spend some time looking at the business itself, I presume. Definitely. Okay. Do you, do you look at uh, the employees that uh, may be involved in the business? Yeah, I mean, f the employees themselves can be uh, one significant expenditure because you've got a p you've got payroll and workers' comp and insurance and those kinds of things. Sometimes the employees also um, know secrets about the business that uh, the wife doesn't know. Um, they're in on it, or they are trying to cover the boss's back because they've got a sweet deal. So they're also really key witnesses. Okay, and on a case you and I have had together, that actually helped us. Definitely. Because, because why? Explain that. Why did the employee help us? Yeah. Well, the. Uh, I mean, she didn't help us, but <laughs> the fact that she was there, she and we existed. knew some information. It, it helped. Right. Why? Right. Well, like I said, it goes back to the cost of the employees, and that's an added expense. And so, the more expenses you can demonstrate, you know that there are that there is income that's not being reported. Okay, you're taking his deposition, and you're asking about the employee, and you say, "How much did you pay her per month?" And he says. Uh, only $900. Okay. <laughs> and you ask her, him, how long have you employed this person? Only and, only 20 years. Okay. So <laughs> makes you say, hmm, right? The, okay. The numbers, when the numbers don't add up, the judges can see that also. Okay. And so people can lie on the stand and lie in their uh, paperwork and lie in their pleadings and interrogatories, but a, a lot of lies will catch up with people. And so especially in family court, when people think that they can be slick, uh, it doesn't. It, it always ends up catching up with them. Cool. All right. Well, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. So that's the Al Capone method, and this is our own uh, Elliot Ness, who <laughs> I could vouch for. Okay, let's turn topics. What I want to talk to you now is about some interesting topics that uh, I've gotten from the news. A recent story, and I even know that I've showed this to you before, is about a man who still mows his wife's lawn after being divorced for 28 years. Sweet. Yeah. Now, you've read this article. Uh, what, what are your initial thoughts on it? Uh, I think that in a um, case where uh, parents are no longer together, whether they're divorced or they never got married, the best thing they can do for their kids is be civil to each other, uh, amicable and kind, because it really uh, does wonders for the kids. Okay. And have any of your uh, clients had their ex-spouses mowing their lawns? Not exactly lawn mowing, does that, does that, how does that reflect on you, by the way? I need to work on it. I okay. need to work on it. Well, this article says, uh, and there's a picture, a picture of the man mowing the grass of his ex-wife who's been divorced for 28 years. Uh, looks like a good guy. This is the daughter's quote. This is my dad mowing my mom's lawn. They've been divorced 28 years. When my younger siblings questioned, why is your dad mowing mom's, or mom's lawn? I told them, because she needed help and she knew she couldn't get out here to do it, so he did it. The story also later on indicates that there's a stepdad there. 
Uh, do you find that a little bit odd? That, Where was he? I don't know. It was apparently <laughs> he travels a lot. So that, that's that's real cooperation, right? You got everybody's uh, okay with him mowing the grass for 28 years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you, any of your clients do anything kind to uh, their soon-to-be ex-spouses? Yeah, of course. I have actually my cases which resolve uh, the fastest and with the least amount of fees are the parties who are amicable and who are just nice to each other and just understand the relationship didn't work out, but we're still two people and we're parents to these children. So um, I have cases where the despite having clear custodial orders, you know, dad calls mom and says, I have to work late. Can you pick up the kids? Or I really want to take them to this show this weekend. I know it's your weekend. Can I take them and we can switch? Yeah. Uh, without involving lawyers, without um, you know threatening to call the police for a violation of the order, they they co-parent with each other, and I that kind of that. communication yeah. and co-parenting, it's uh, it saves it, it saves the kids, it saves fees, it saves time. Uh, so it's good, always yeah. good. Yeah, I had a, uh, an acquaintance once. Uh, she was divorced. She lived about a block away from her ex-husband, uh, and they shared custody. And whenever he got into any kind of trouble, she was the first one they called. Yeah. And it was really cute. I mean, not cute that he got arrested for DUI, but cute that she went out there and bailed him out and brought him back home and stuff, you know. And they, they really did co-parent. I yeah. mean, but uh, unfortunately, there isn't enough of that, I, I think. You know, it's, it's a fact that children suffer, right, when parents aren't co-parenting. So. Yes. Maybe uh, there should be some kind of a parenting class about mowing the other parents' uh, lawn or washing their dishes. Or what, what do you think? Uh, I think it would be a tough sell, but <laughs> we should try it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Our last topic of the day, and, I, and I'm sorry that I'm going to put you on the hot seat. I did this to our last <laughs> guest, but I, I have a thing about you millennials, okay? Uh, I happen to be a parent of three millennials, and I just can't get over this, and maybe I'm obsessed, and somebody from my audience is probably going to uh, recommend me to a shrink or something. <laughs> but millennials are not marrying like other generations, uh, and they could show. Statistically, people are either delaying marriage or they're not marrying, and I have a problem with that because I think that marriage protects people. You have a different viewpoint. Tell me what your viewpoint is. My viewpoint is that uh, marriage may expose people um, to things like spousal support and division of property. Expose, man. That sounds like it's bad. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> the debate's about to start. Go ahead. The, my idea is that you have to make sure that you're marrying the right person for the right reasons. And if you have those two things, then none of this should be an issue. Um, but if you're not marrying the right person or you're getting married for the wrong reasons, then you may not understand the legal ramifications of what it means to be married. So, um, you may end up paying spousal support for a long time and a lot of money. But you may be receiving spousal support for a long time Well, or I, with a lot of money. That's true. Okay. I think it depends on, on where you're situated, um, in life financially and, um, you have to, like I said, you have to make sure that you're with the right person. Okay, but that's not the issue, young lady. Okay, the issue is, is <laughs> Did why. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? <laughs> why are the people of your generation saying, you know what? I'd rather live together. And a lot of them are having children. Okay, mm -hmm. they're having kids, and you know, for me, uh, getting married. I'm talking about a state marriage. I'm not talking about the religious marriage. That's a different thing. But we get married legally to protect people, right? You get to start acquiring property. And you can ensure that there's going to be spousal support, or at least you got the right to ask for spousal support. 
When you don't marry, you don't get to ask for those things. So I've had several cases where people come in and they've been together for 20 years, raised kids. There's been property owned. And the woman says, you know, I want half of everything and I want spousal support. And I'm like, sorry, I can't get that for you because you weren't married. They didn't know that. And so, you know, this thought about the new Pepsi generation, you know, wanting to do things differently. I'm sorry, that's an old expression. Um, <laughs> but you guys, you guys wanted to do it differently. I, I, you're, I think you're protecting uh, maybe the educated, uh, you, you know, people that could fend for themselves. But what about the lower class people who are the ones that are mostly not marrying? Because the studies show that the uh, wealthier or the more educated people are marrying because it's a, a status symbol. But it's the poor people who are electing not to do it because they feel that they can't afford the marriage. It sounds like the guy. A lot of the times, the guy is saying, "I can't afford to marry her, so I'm not going to do it." They they live together, they have children, and then they're the woman and the kids aren't protected as much. You don't see that as a problem. Well, she in that scenario, she has to understand what it means if she's going to be in a long term relationship without getting married. She has to understand that she has no right to spousal support or to uh, community property. And so she either has to protect herself by uh, <laughs> forcing a marriage. <laughs> okay, I love it. The shotgun marriage, man. We're back to the old basics then. Okay. Or, um, or uh, putting, getting her name on property or entering into some sort of contractual agreement. But other than that, um, no, she has to recognize that if she's going to uh, invest her time into this relationship and have children and stop working, she's not going to get anything out of it in, in that scenario. So, um, do you think that maybe there should be some more warnings out there or education? I think that people need to understand what it means legally to be married, that it's not just about, um, you know, you're in a loving relationship and you, you really want it to work. I'm sure everybody wants it to work, but they have to understand what it means to be married and what you can get and what you can't get. See, see and here's married. where we p- will part ways. Is you're more <laughs> concerned about what you are going to lose by yes. getting married. I'm more <laughs> concerned about what you're going to get by getting married. Right. Seems like seems like... Uh, we're in agreement and disagree at the same time. So uh, not unusual with you and me. We, we, we <laughs> tend to talk a lot like this. Okay. So thank you very much, Debbie, for being on our program. I think this was very informative. And uh, I, I really hope that we could do this again. Sounds thank good. you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Exhibit A. And we'll see you next time. Exhibit A is produced by David Lindley at the law offices of Donald P. Schweitzer in Pasadena, California. For more information, visit us online at PasadenaLawOffice.com and all social media platforms.